Well, I, I don't know if this is how it works anymore because I haven't been to a public pool in many a year. But when I was growing up, they had like the kiddie pool part. You know, when you were real young, you would go to the public pool and you weren't allowed to be in the big part. You were just in the kiddie part. And so, so maybe if you, when you were growing up, you didn't have a kiddie part like that. Maybe in your backyard, you had one of those little plastic pools. You know those kind in West Texas that if you just leave out, they're going to be in someone else's yard uh, later on. And, and so, you know, that's fun when you're little, but the, co- the time comes that you want to move to a bigger pool. Like for me, when I would go to the public pool, I didn't want to be in that kiddie pool anymore. That was for babies. I wanted to go to the bigger pool, you know, and then you kind of get the courage and you're like, well, I'm going to jump off the diving board. And then a little more courage or your friends, you know, kind of like, um, you know, make you, you jump off the high dive. And then, but even then at some point you're like, I I just want to swim in a bigger place and maybe have the, the opportunity to go to the beach and to swim in some, some open water. You know, and so the thing about once you get past the place of lifeguards, you get back into the open water, there's all kinds of things to be careful for, all kinds of you know, animals that might be in there. There's jellyfish, there's riptides, there's all kinds of things in that open water. It's more dangerous. But you know what? Sometimes for us as believers, we have this idea that God just needs to leave me, leave me in the kiddie pool. I just want to live a Christian life that's just just real easy and real comfortable. But the Lord says, you know what, let's move past in your spiritual life. Let's move past the kiddie pool and let's get in the big pool. And you're kind of splashing around the big pool for a little while. And then the Lord says, "How how about we go to the deep end? Why don't we jump off the diving board? Why don't we go off the high dive? And then at some point, the Lord, you find yourself, you wake up one day and you're like, I'm in open water. (laughs) I don't know how I got here. I don't know how long I can tread water, but this is a real challenge. And the Lord's warned us that this is how it's going to be. Let me give you a couple of verses to remind you of this truth. Psalm 34, verse 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And so we're going to have those those open water times. We're going to have those times of affliction and difficulty, but God is going to deliver them, deliver us out of them all. One of the other books I finished recently was called Suffering is Never for Nothing by Elizabeth Elliot. And I have it in the, you know, in the announcements or the kind of the rolling announcements as another suggested resource. And she was going through and near the end of her book talking about all the different difficulties that, that Christians have gone through or believers have gone through. And she mentioned something interesting. She said, would you know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego if they didn't go into the fiery furnace? You wouldn't know. And so she kind of goes through all these difficulties these believers had, but she said the end is always the same. For the believer, the end of every difficulty, hardship is ultimately glory. So no matter what we go through, no matter how deep the waters are, we know that that's the end goal, and that's what God's going to bring us to. Uh, Paul picked up this theme in the New Testament when he said in Acts 14, verse 22, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So we're going to be entering the kingdom of God as believers, but there's these many tribulations along the way. And so I would encourage you and I would encourage me as we move through this to realize there's going to be a challenge. And it's interesting as I read verse, I'm sorry, as I study verse by verse through the book of Psalms, I'm like, man, haven't we already talked about this? (laughs) Hasn't this already been a theme? And yes, it has. But one of the things that I'm committed to as a teacher of the Bible is to teach things in proportion to how they appear in the scriptures. And so if it talks a lot about believers suffering in the scriptures as we move through it, we're going to talk a lot about that. You know, that's very helpful for us. 
It's helpful to remind ourselves of these truths. I was talking to one of my friends a, a while back, and, and it had come to him. He said, you know what, the, most, the three most common references to Christians in the New Testament, as far as jobs go, are running, farming, and fighting. You think about that, running, farming, and fighting. Why is that important? Because those are all things you want to quit on. Anyone who's ever run has had the feeling of, why am I doing this? <laughs> this is not what I want to do. It's, it's hard. It's difficult. Farming is something that takes patience and hard work. Fighting is something that, that you know, as a soldier fights, he's tempted to give up, to quit on. So we have to remind ourselves of this. And I was talking to another one of my friends, friends of mine, and he's going through a difficult season. And he says, he talks about like, you know, praying to the Lord and seeking the Lord. It's a lot like chopping wood. And as the Lord calls you out there to chop wood and chop wood, you have this stack of wood and you wonder, is the Lord ever going to use it? <laughs> is he ever going to make something out of this? Is he going to ever use this for fuel? So as we're moving through here, we want to remind ourselves that yes, as a believer, we're going to go through deep waters. It's going to be a challenge, it's going to be difficulty, but the Lord is going to deliver us out of all of these afflictions, and he's going to deliver us to his kingdom. So let's move in Psalm 69 now, and we look at Psalm 69, and it says, To the chief musician set to the lilies a psalm of David. Now, I'm not exactly sure what the lilies are. I don't know if it was a, you know, a sweet tune back in the day. And like, hey, let's make this one to the lilies. I don't know if that's what it is. Some people think that Hebrew word actually refers to a Hebrew instrument, that it was used for this. We don't know for sure. But what I do want you to, to pay attention to as we move through Psalm 69 is there's some different messianic prophecies. There may be some verses in here that you recognize from the New Testament, and so just keep an eye out for that. But let's begin with verses 1 through 3, where David writes, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire, where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters, where the floods overflow me. I am weary from my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Okay, so this is very vivid imagery, right? And one of the things that I would encourage you to, and I try to remind you of this often, is it'd be great after you study this psalm to take some time this week and just pray through it. You know, pray through this psalm and, and, and pray through the things that God is teaching you through it and, and, and pray, you know, that God would interact with you. But I, I love this vivid imagery, you know, of, of waters up to your neck, deep in the mire, deep waters, all of that. We can understand this. We can understand that, that, that there's hardship and difficulty and, and you feel like you're drowning in that thing and you don't know if you can make it. But what I want you to focus on for just a moment here is at the end of verse 3 when he says, My eyes fail while I wait for my God. That word wait is not the word for waiting in a, 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 you know, a, a waiting room. You know, when you're in a waiting room, you're just waiting but you're just like, I just hope this thing is over. It's not expectant. Because usually when you're waiting in a waiting room, it's for something bad. <laughs> right? It's not because you enjoy it. This waiting here actually speaks of waiting hopefully. Of waiting expectantly. Of waiting for God to come through. It's a speaking of hope and faith. And so I want to do something now. I want to have you turn to 1 Peter for just a moment. So would you turn near the end of your Bibles to 1 Peter? And actually, I'm going to go through a pretty long section here. Um, I'll, I'll go through it fairly quickly. 
But as I, I tried to shorten it as I was working on my study, and I just couldn't find a good place to stop it. So we're actually going to look at 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 21. And again, I'm going to give that exhortation again to maybe take some time this week and pray through this passage of Scripture. To, to pray through the things that God is showing you here. Because what I, what I have found personally is I pray through the Scriptures, God reveals truth to me. And then what happens is I'm praying at other times, the Scripture comes back. And so even as you, you know, maybe choose five people to, to pray for, maybe even ask God, hey, would you give me a scripture for each of these people? Well, will, you, will you show me something so I can pray over them? So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter, please keep in mind, is writing to the persecuted church. He's writing to believers who are suffering persecution, and he wants to give them hope as they're in deep waters. And so whether we're in difficulty now, or we're in difficulty later, these are helpful for us to remember. As it's been well said about Christians, you're you're in either one of three places related to storms. You're either going into a storm, you're coming out of a storm, or you're in the middle of a storm. (laughs) That's how it is for us as believers. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, notice, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is living. Our hope is not something that was true 2,000 years ago, but now it's relegated to the history books. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. Jesus Christ is alive today. He is our living hope. He is our resurrected Lord. Notice verse 4, and this this is where Peter really piles it on. He says, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You and I, as believers, have an inheritance reserved for for us in heaven. And it's incorruptible, it's undefiled, it doesn't fade away. We have this to look forward to. And he says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, okay? So in other words, what we, verses 3 through 5 is the this that we're to rejoice in. This fact that we have a living hope, that we have an inheritance waiting for us, that we're kept by the power of God. In this you greatly rejoice, here it is, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. It's vital for us, if we're to keep the faith in the midst of our deep waters, that we remember that we have this living hope that we remember that we have this inheritance, that we remember this. And, and, that, that, and also, notice in verse 6, that we remind ourselves that our deep waters, though they seem so long in the moment, they're really just for a little while. As Paul says, they're light afflictions which are but for a moment. And he also says there in verse 6, if need be. In other words, God is the one who allows these deep waters in our life. God is the one who, because he wants to build something in us. He wants to refine us. He wants to change us. But, but we are grieved by these various trials. So, so a, a Christian who says, man, I go through extreme difficulty, and boy, do I love it. No, it's grievous to us. So as Paul says, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We can rejoice in him in the midst of that, but it doesn't mean that we're happy about the situation. Notice, so these various trials, verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold which perishes, 
though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so God is refining us through these deep waters. He's strengthening us through that so that we could have a faith that honors Jesus Christ, that praises Jesus Christ, that glories in him. He says, and I love this, verse 8. Well, I love all of it, but verse 8, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So for you and I, as we go through these trials, as we continue on to, to trust the Lord in the midst of these deep waters, that, that as we keep on believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, then what happens, we're able to rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And, and, and there have been some occasions in the last couple of years where I have experienced this. I've experienced the joy inexpressible, full of glory, and I, and I can't express it to you because it's inexpressible. <laughs> There's no way for me to communicate it to you, but I know that it's true. And then he says, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating that when he testified beforehand that the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. In other words, the Old Testament prophets, they prophesied of the Messiah, they didn't really know how it was going to work out. They didn't really understand. But you and I, living on this side of the cross, we have a greater privilege than the prophets of the old covenant because we've seen how it works out. We know him. We're, we have a, a wonderful advantage. Verse 12, to them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which you now have reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Isn't that cool? That, that as we study the word of God, you know, and, and how God relates to mankind and what God's doing, angels are interested. They're intrigued by that. And therefore, let's move into verse 13. Therefore, in other words, in light of everything we've gone through, in light of all the stuff that Peter says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. We, we, in other words, in your thinking, in your heart, your soul, put on your big boy pants. That's ultimately what he's saying, right? He's saying, Let, let's, let's take care of business. In the ancient world, when you were going to work or you were going to fight, you would have to gather up you know, your long clothing and, and cinch it down because you're about to be engaged. You're, you're about to, to, to take care of some business. So that's what he's saying for us to do in our minds and our hearts. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice that he doesn't say rest part of your hope in circumstance and part of your hope in finances and part of your hope in relationships and part of your, no, no, he says rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yours and my hope is to be fully in Christ, and it's not going to be fully realized until we see him face to face, until we're, we're joined up with him. He says, as obedient children, I love that, as children of God obeying the Father, not conforming yourself to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call upon the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves, here it is, throughout your stay here in fear. So he's basically saying, hey, in, in light of this hope, in light of all these things, obey the Lord. Right? Do what he calls you to do. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Right? That's what we're to do. 
you know, but, but realizing, hey, the, the day is coming where we're going to be joined to the Lord. And I want to, to, to focus your attention here in verse 17 as he's calling us to obey. The end of verse 17, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. I love that phrase, your stay. When you go, you know, and you're going to spend a couple of nights in a hotel, you realize it's just a stay. Right? You're, you're, not, you're not moving in. You don't bring all of your stuff there because that's not where you're going to live forever. So it is for us. That word stay, actually, there, it means like a sojourning, to dwell somewhere as a resident alien. So we have to keep that in our mind, that I'm just staying here for a little while. I'm a pilgrim. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. You know, my treasures are stored up for me beyond the blue. That's what we're called to. He says, verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Just incredible things. Just scratching the surface. Again, I would encourage you, go back through this passage this week. Pray through it. You know, go through all those things that I missed and, and, and see if the Lord will encourage you in the midst of deep waters. All right, let's go back now to Psalm 69. We'll move on to verse 4 now. He says, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me. Being my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing from them, still I must restore it. A reminder in verse 4 that believers will have unreasonable enemies. Right? He says, they hate me without a cause. So when you find yourself in a situation, as you're just walking with the Lord and it seems like everything is falling down and people hate you for no reason, realize that that's just how it is. Now, now what's, what's going on behind the scenes? I'll remind you of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Ephesians 6, 12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. If you're serving the Lord, you're going you're to be at enmity with the demonic. And you're going to face them. You know, you're going to go against them and it's going to be difficult. So, so what should we do? Well, I would encourage you to pray and go over the heads of your enemies. So often we, we aim too low, right? We think, well, there's a problem politically and the only way to solve this is to get really involved politically. Now, if God calls you to get involved politically, I'm not going to stand in your way right? But if you just merely get involved politically and you don't also pray, you don't go over the heads of people, you don't deal with a demonic activity behind the scenes, well, then you're really fooling yourself. And so for you and I, what we should do is we should pray over the heads. You may have a hundred enemies, but you know what? You have a God who's over those hundred enemies, who's above those enemies. And so go directly to the Lord. Seek him to move people. Verse 5, Oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. Okay, so, so David realizes that God knows all of our sins. God knows all of our faults. God knows all of our failures. And I would encourage you as you pray to the Lord, you know, ask forgiveness for your sins and use the word sin. I've noticed, unfortunately, in some modern day Christian literature, they, they try to not use the word sin. They say mistakes or, you know, mess ups or all the, it's sin. 
right? It's sin. And so it's important for us to realize that, that God knows all our sins. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So God sees all sins. God sees every sin we've ever done in the past. God sees every sin that we've done today. God sees all sin in the future that we're going to commit. Okay, what's the application? Let me give you three applications of this truth. Number one is be honest with God. Be honest with God. Don't try to hide your sin from God. Don't try to justify yourself. Don't go to God and say, Lord, he made me do it. You saw him. You saw it's not my fault. He started it, this kind of thing. You know my boss is a jerk, all of that stuff. No, no, no. Your boss may be a jerk, okay? But that's, that's between him and God. <laughs> Your deal is you to be honest before him. Now, after you're honest with the Lord, you know what? Be encouraged. Be encouraged that God knows your sins because God knows you're a sinner and so because he knows that, he sent his son to die for your sins, and he still chooses to have a relationship with you. You see, so many people get freaked out. Oh, God knows all my sins, and how could he, and I can't believe this, and doesn't let me have any privacy, and all these kind of nonsensical ideas. But we should be encouraged that God knows all of our sins. And here's why. Because he know, he's the only one who knows absolutely everything about you and still invites you into fellowship still invites you into relationship, still wants to spend time with you. And the third thing, so be honest, be encouraged, finally be repentant. What I mean by that, the word repentance, it speaks of a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. If you want to go to Dallas today, and then a little down the road, you see a sign that says El Paso 100 miles. You've gone the wrong direction. You guys are like, wow, I didn't know that. Well, yeah. Just go ahead and wake up. Uh, so at that moment, you have a choice to make. You can either say, you know what, I think that sign's wrong. I think I'm just going to keep going this direction. Or you could say, you know what, I'm wrong. I'm going to find the, the, the next exit, and I'm going to turn around and go the other way. So many Christians, we may offer our sins up to God. We're encouraged that he still loves us, but we have no intention of repenting. We have no intention of doing something different. And so it's important for us to say, you know what, if I'm wrong, God, give me the power to do something different. And so as, as, this is a key, and, and I'm, I'm going to you know, encourage you to, to um, take account of this, is as a believer, you should be growing in Christ-likeness. You should be growing in Christ-likeness. Okay? And, and this is what I think. Think about it. If every year you got worse at your job, if every year, you know, you're working and you got worse and worse at your job, something is wrong. So for us as believers, we should be growing in Christ-likeness. If we're not growing in Christ-likeness, there's a problem. Something's going on. But you know, what's good is if you recognize that and you say, oh man, this is not going well, then ask the Lord, reveal to me what's going on here. Show me what it is and I can do something different. Because the, the Lord is very, very interested in you becoming like Christ. In fact, Romans 8.29 says that that's his whole purpose for us, to conform us to the image of his son. So if you and I put ourselves in that place to say, Lord, grow me even through the deep waters, he is going to do that. He's going to answer that prayer. Let's move on to verse 6. It says, let not those who wait for you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be conformed because of me, O God of Israel. So David was concerned about others, and that's another important part. Paul says in Philippians, hey, let's not only be concerned with your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And so 
David is concerned that his situation was going to stumble other believers. He was concerned that as he's going through these deep waters and it kind of seems like his, his, his life is on fire, that other people were going to, other believers were going to be stumbled by that. And so this is a reminder that our attitude toward our own suffering impacts fellow believers. Okay, so, so please hear me. Our attitude toward our own suffering impacts other believers. You know, as, as I talked about, you know, that Elizabeth Elliot book and other books that, that I've read or listened to, or I've seen people who are dealing with suffering and disease and things. And, and when they, you know, they're honest with it, that it's hard, but they're still seeking the Lord. They're still hoping in the Lord. It encourages me greatly. And so for you and I, we can actually look at, see this suffering in our life that God has taken us through, through these deep waters and is an opportunity to be a witness for the Lord and his goodness. There's a saying by, uh, I, I forget, oh, I forget the guy's name offhand. I think it's Kenneth Boa who said, you know, whatever God allows, God redeems. And so whatever God allows in your life, whatever hardship, whatever deep waters, whatever tribulation, God's willing to redeem that. God's willing to make something beautiful out of that. And, and, and so it's really important for you and I to go to God with our suffering, to give it all to him, to seek him in the midst of our suffering. Let me give you a couple of verses related to this. It comes from Psalm 142. Psalm 142, verses 1 and 2, I love this, says, I cry out to the Lord with my voice, with my voice to the Lord I make my supplication, I will pour out my complaint before him, I will declare before him my trouble. I'd encourage you to do that. I'd encourage you to, to pour it all out before the Lord and to cry out to him, to be like that, you know, the, the persistent widow who went to the unrighteous judge over and over and over again in the parable that Jesus gave. And then what, what will happen, I believe, is over time, as you truly leave it with him, then you can rest. Because no matter what happens, if the trial continues or it's abated, any of those things, you'll have gone to the one who can do something about it. You'll have gone to the one who can make a change, and that will bring great encouragement to your life. Verse 7 says, because, uh, for, because for your sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. And so faithful believers will suffer shame for the sake of Christ. Just the reality, right? And think about it. The world despises Christ. The world mocks Christ, hates Christ. The, the only Christ that the world loves is one of their own making. So they have a fake Jesus who basically just says to everybody, you're cool. It's good no matter what. That's not the Christ of the scriptures. And so if the world hates the true Christ, despises him, and your entire golden life is to be as much like him as possible, then they're going to hate you as well. That's just the reality. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 12 and 13. He says, we labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. He says, okay, we're reviled. You know, people say evil against us, but we bless them. He's saying, being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. So that was what Paul said. He says, we become the offscouring. You know that word offscouring? It's like when, you, when you, you cook something on the stovetop, and you know how it just really sticks to the pot? And then you set it in the sink, and you put some water in there, and you kind of forget about it? You know, because you're full of hope, and you want to sit down and watch the cowboys and see if they'll break your heart again, or maybe not. <laughs> right? And, and you forget about it, and you come back the next day, and, and it's nasty in the sink. 
that stuff. Paul said, that's what we are. He says, we're the off-scouring. That's how the world treats us. That's how the world looks at us. The world looks at believers as if they're the scum left in the bottom of a pot. But Paul says, we don't give up because of that. We don't become like the world because of that. We continue to trust in Christ. And so when you and I enter into this life realizing we're going to be despised and consider the off-scouring, and that's okay because we have that, that, that imperishable inheritance waiting for us, we can enter into that with, with true expectations. Okay, this is how it's going to be, and that's okay because all my hope is in the Lord, not in how people treat me, not in how people respond to me. All right, verses 8 and 9. It says, I become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children because zeal for your house has eaten me up and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Okay, so faithful obedience to the Lord often results in familial uh, disharmony, right? So if your whole family are not believers and you become a believer and you're on fire for Christ, oftentimes it creates a strain. Now, what's, here's the cool thing about the Lord and what I've seen him do over and over again is if you'll just stay, if you'll keep loving your family in Christ and you, and you, you just love them, you pray for them, but you keep serving the Lord, here's what the Lord does. Oftentimes he brings the family around. Oftentimes he, he brings them around. But it's important for us to understand that that can happen. Think about Jesus' own brothers. Jesus' brothers rejected him. It wasn't until Jesus rose from the dead that his brothers were like, oh yeah, I guess he is the Messiah. <laughs> And they placed their faith in him. And so David's zeal for the Lord caused a rift with his family. You know, now you may recognize verse 9. Verse 9 is also used in reference to Jesus cleansing the temple. So when Jesus cleansed the temple, the disciples remembered this verse from Psalm 69. And they realized, oh, it's a messianic uh, verse that applies to the Lord Jesus. Let's move on to verses 10 through 12. He says, when I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth my garment. I became a byword to them. Those who sit in the gate speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkards. And so that's a pretty radical thing, that the more David sought the Lord in the midst of his grief, the more people around David mocked him. Could you imagine, you know, you're walking down the street by a bar, and, and like all the drunks in the bar are singing a song about you, mocking you? <laughs> That's pretty rough. That's what he says here. That's what's going on here. But this is a reminder for us as we look at verses 10 through 12 to, to not expect uh, encouragement from unbelievers. Okay, don't expect that. Expect encouragement from believers. And so you say, well, I don't ever get encouragement for, from believers. We'll get connected more with believers. Right? Spend more time with believers. Get to know them. Share your life with them. It's important for that. Now, um, I accidentally skipped over it. One, one verse I want you to, guys to, to take note of, and you can read it later on your own, is, is John 15, uh, verses 18 through 21. And basically in that passage, it's, it's right before Jesus is arrested, and he's given some last instructions to his disciples. And he basically says to them, hey, guys, the world has hated me, and so the world's going to hate you. And so that's just a good passage for us to, to remind ourselves. Now, as we're going through this, I want to take a brief aside for just a moment. I hope that you're not getting the thing of like, well, Steve said, I just got to grin and bear it and get tough and expect the world to hate me and kind of put my head down and go through these things. That's not what I'm saying. Okay, I'm saying is expect difficulty, expect hardship, but expect it knowing that the Lord is working it all together for the good. 
Okay, expect it going out saying, well, I don't hate unbelievers because they come against me. I want to pray for them. I want to love them. I want to serve them. So, so, it's, so there's this, this tension of this realization that I'm, I'm going to encounter difficulty in this life, but at the same time, I don't want to let it harden me. I still want to be open and vulnerable to love people. Right? It's this idea of like, well, I'm going to a spiritual war, but it's interesting. I'm not interested in killing my enemies those believers that are against me, I actually want to fight this war that they might be converted to my side because my side is the Lord's side. That's what I'm going. So there's this tension on even those who are our enemies, uh, according to you know, going against Christ, that our, our hatred is not toward them. Our desire for them is actually that they would turn and believe. So, so there's this tension as we see throughout the scriptures. All right, let's continue on. Verse 13 he says, but as for me, and I want to just stop there for just a minute, but as for me, I love that. So he's been talking about how the, the unbelievers were behaving and how they were mocking him, but David is contrasting himself with them. He's contrasting himself with those people. He says, I'm going to do something different. And, and this phrase, but as for me, reminded me of a wonderful passage from the book of Joshua. So would you turn to Joshua for just a minute? The sixth book of your Bible, there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then Joshua. So Joshua 24. Now, Joshua here, he's kind of, you know, getting close to wrapping up his ministry. And so he's giving a kind of a closing exhortation, if you will, to the nation of Israel. And so Joshua 24, we want to look at verses 14 through 15. It's probably, you know, yeah, maybe Joshua is one of those books you haven't spent a whole lot of time in. The paper, you know, sounds real nice still. It's real new. Uh, Joshua 24, starting at verse 14. Keep in mind, he's speaking to the nation of Israel. They've settled the promised land, and he's giving them this exhortation. I love it. He says, now, therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Okay, so he's, he's given them this, this exhortation. Guys, we want to let go of all that idolatry. We want to let go of all those false gods that we served back in the day. We want to focus only on serving the true and living God, the God who brought us out of Egypt. And then he says this, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And here it is, But as for me... And my house, we will serve the Lord. Love that. So there's that, but ask for me. So I love this, that Joshua, as a guy who loved the Lord from a young age, a guy who was kind of Moses' right-hand man, and he would hang out at the tabernacle of meeting and just to be around where the Lord was, a man who he with Caleb were the only two spies who went into the promised land who said, we can take it, God's got this, who had to wander with the Israelites through all of the, those 40 years in the wilderness, who was the main leader after Moses going to the promised land, who saw the Lord face to face as the commander of the army of hosts, all of these things. And what Joshua at the end of his life is basically saying this, guys, we have a choice to make. And he says, I know what the right choice is. The right choice is to serve the Lord. But he says, I can't make you guys serve the Lord. I can't cause you to do it. It's up to you. I'm giving you that choice. But here's what I'll say. He's, this is, he says, this is my example. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And that's so encouraging. 
Because you and I get so frustrated in life because we not only want to make decisions for ourselves, but everyone who affects us, everyone around us. But we should love people and serve people and pray for people and then give them choice. Hey, the best thing you can do in life is to serve the Lord, but I can't make that decision for you. It's your choice. But as for me and my house, in other words, what, I, what God has given me, the this, this sphere of my influence, we're going to serve the Lord. That's a beautiful choice that you and I can make moment by moment is that you, we are going to serve the Lord. All right, let's turn back now to Psalm 69. Continuing on there in verse 13. He says, but as for me, and as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, in the acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. And so notice David is focused on the Lord, prays to the Lord, everything's about the Lord, and he says here, you know, O Lord of your salvation. And, and so what we, what we have here is that David, again, he wants out of this difficult situation, but he is submitted to the Lord. And so I want you to see three things he's submitted to here in verse 13. He's submitted to the Lord's timing, right? He says, O Lord, in the acceptable time. So submitted to the Lord's timing. Second thing, he submitted to the Lord's mercy. He says, oh God, in the multitude of your mercy. And then finally, he submitted to the Lord's deliverance. He says, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Oh, that word salvation can mean deliverance. So this is submission to the Lord. Submission to the Lord's timing, to his mercy, his deliverance. What I want you to notice is missing here is entitlement. There's no entitlement here. There's no, I deserve to be delivered. And, and what are you doing? And if you want me to keep staying on your team, Lord, you better do something about this because I'm about to head out of here. I'm going to find something better. None of that. And so it's really important for us to replace our entitlement with submission. And so, you know what? I'm not entitled to anything. I, I, I know, for me personally, the only thing I'm entitled to is death and hell. That's what I'm entitled to. That's, that's my just desserts. And so instead of saying, you know what, I don't want to live by entitlement. I want to live by submission to the Lord. You know, Jacob, if you, if you study the life of Jacob, he did a lot of things wrong. <laughs> he made a lot of messes. But, but I love what Jacob said in Genesis 32.10. He prayed to the Lord and he said this, I am not worthy of the least of all, your, all the mercies of all the truth which you have shown your servant. What a beautiful prayer to pray that to the Lord. Lord, deliver me in your timing with your mercy you know what? I'm not, I'm not deserving of the least of anything you've given me. I'm not deserving of any of that. Let's move on to verses 14 and 15. It says, deliver me out of the mire and let me not sink. Let me deliver, be delivered from those who hate me and out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up. And let not the pit shut its mouth on me. And so again, a prayer for deliverance. And we have this, this picture of, of David, you know, sinking in the mire and you know what, one of God's, you know, uh, prophets he used greatly was Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, I want to read it for you, Jeremiah chapter 38, verse 6, Jeremiah actually literally sunk in the mire. We read these words. It says, so they took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison, and they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the dungeon, there was no water but mire, so Jeremiah sunk in the mire. I want you to let that, think about that for just a minute. Jeremiah, a guy chosen by God to be a prophet, has all these revelations. God basically says to Jeremiah, you're going to preach for 40 years and they're not going to listen to you. Okay, I want you to be faithful to me. And, and he, his reward is he gets put in this dungeon where he's just in this muck. Just, you think about that. It's a hardship. 
And so uh, the reminder I want you to have for this, what David's going through, what Jeremiah went through, what countless other believers have gone through is simply this. Faithfulness to the Lord does not shield you from suffering. Okay, faithfulness to the Lord does not shield you from suffering. And I know that you've heard this through this passage. I know you've heard it again and again. We need to be reminded of this constantly because the Joel Osteens of the world want to tell us different. They want to tell us that, hey, if you're just faithful enough, if you just have enough faith, if you just read enough of my books, then you're, everything's going to be good for you. That is not the testimony of Scripture. The testimony of Scripture is it's going to go well for you at the end, but there's going to be a lot of hardship along the way. Let's read verses 16 through 18 now. It says, Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Be deliver me because of my enemies. So this is a desperate plea, but notice who the desperate plea is. It's based on who God is. Right? That God, according to your loving kindness and the multitude of your tender mercies and all of this. So this is an, an exhortation for you and I to pray biblically. Get to know who God is. And then get to know who God is as revealed in the Bible and then pray accordingly. Pray God's word back to him. Get to know who God is from the Bible and then pray back to him in that way. Verses 19 through 21. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart. I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, and I found none. And they also gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. And so David looked around, but he couldn't find anybody to help him, right, among the people. There was no one to help him. And so this is a reminder for you and I sometimes no human being, even the, the believers who love us most, they're not going to be able to help us. Just because what we're going through in the situation, and so we, I know I'm a broken record, but that's okay. You just seek the Lord. <laughs> seek the Lord for help, okay? And seek him for, for what you need to sustain you. And also, you know, later on, you can look it up yourself if you'd like, but verses 19 through 21 tie into Jesus on the cross, as Jesus is, is there on the cross, as he's forsaken on the cross, as they give him vinegar to drink, and, and so there's messianic prophecies there as well. All right, we're going to get a bigger section now, verses 22 through 28. It says, let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let your dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents, for they persecute the ones you have struck. And talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, nor, and not be written with the righteous. And so David cries out for judgment upon these unrepentant sinners. And it's a radical thing. And, and you know, we look at this, and, and so uh, we say, wow, should David be praying this way? Should that be the right attitude toward these people? And, you know, it could be a righteous call for justice, right? I mean, think about it. Think about if you were, you know, you were living during the time of, of the power of Nazi Germany, right? And, and they're going to be invading your country. You're probably calling out to God to, to take them down, to take them out, so that could be what's going on here. But, you know, people debate passages like these and, you know, and we ask ourselves, well, what about loving your enemies? You know, how does that work out with something like this? And, and we want to remind ourselves that, yes, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. 
and that we should pray for them. Um, but we're also told that Christ's enemies will be made his footstool, that he's going to defeat them. And, and so my understanding as we look at passages like this, as we think about our, the, you know, those who come against us in this life, is that we should pray for our enemies, that we should ask God to save them, and that we should ask God for do his will, to do his will in the situation. And so uh, for, for kind of further thought on this, I would encourage you on your own. We don't have time to get there, but First Thessalonians, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, that it basically um, talks about how God is going to um, go after, destroy those who are persecuting the Thessalonians. It's a radical passage. But, but, but here's ultimately, I think, the take on it. We can pray for our enemies we can ask God to deal with the situation in, in, in whatever way he wants and realize that vengeance belongs to the Lord, right? And so if he needs to take vengeance, that's his business. It's not our opportunity. It's not our business to take vengeance upon our enemies. Verse 29, it says, But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. Okay, so David is low. God needs, he wants God to set him up high. And this reminds me of the verse that says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's one of the things that God often does. You know, when, when you're out there in deep waters, you start feeling really small, okay? You start feeling really helpless. And that's really who you were all along. It just took something difficult for God to reveal that to you. You see, when things are going well, we puff out our chest and we think we're something special and we got it covered. And, and that's, that's never reality. That's, that's an illusion. So God will take us through difficulty to reveal who we really are and our need for him. Verses 30 and 31, I will praise the name of God with song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than ox or bull, which has horns and hooves. And so here, you know, uh, David talks about the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. We've talked about that in the book of Hebrews. And it's from an undivided heart. And so what does God most want from you? What is the best thing that you can give to God? It's your heart. Because if you give God your heart, everything else will follow. Give God your heart. God's not looking for, oh, I just got to really give a, a big tithe to the Lord because then he'll do this or that. Or I really got to make this sacrifice. Just give God your heart. Just lift it up to him and say, Lord, do with it what you want, and then everything else he wants to do in your life will follow after that. Verses 32 and 33 says, The humble shall see this and be glad, and you shall seek God, your hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. And so seeing believers delivered when they are delivered and praising the Lord encourages other believers. Okay, And so please remember that. No difficulty that you endure is forever. Right? Every difficulty has an end date. Verses 34 through 36 says, Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. And also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. And so this is a reminder, deliverance is coming. Okay, deliverance is coming. And we have hope. Now, I'm going to cheat real quick and move through Psalm 70. Just, it's real small. We're going, to, we're going to do it. It says, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, to bring remembrance. Verses 1 through 3, similar tone. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste, Lord. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and confounded who seek my life. Let them be turned back and confused who desire my hurt. Let them be turned back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. And, and so David needs help, once again, 
right? So we don't know when Psalm 69 was written and when Psalm 70 was written, but we know that David needs help a lot. And probably for you and I, if God called on us to, you know, to record all of our troubles along the way, we would have seen, man, I've needed help a lot too. So it's a good reminder. We're always needing help. Um, so we ask God to intervene and to stop the evildoers. Verse 4, let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. So this is a prayer for believers to be joyful in praise. Uh, it says in scriptures, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I want to give you a real practical thing. If you're a person who lives, listens to music, I would encourage you to take some time to listen to worship music. Just take some time to le- listen to worship music. And, and, and please, well, we can have a debate, debate after service. Well, there's no good Christian music. That's baloney. Okay? There's all kinds of good worship music. And so I'd encourage you to do that. I was exhorted on that. You know, as I got away from a while of listening to worship music, and I was kind of not being reminded of these truths. I was not singing back to the Lord. And so you find yourself in a place where you don't rejoice, you don't praise, you know, everything's dark. Listen to worship music. What you'll find is as you learn those songs, you'll start singing along to those songs. And it'll, it'll lift your heart. It'll remind you of the truth. Verse 5 now says, But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. So once again, what is it? David needs help. (laughs) Okay, David needs help, and that's okay. The Lord didn't get tired of hearing from David. So so this is a reminder for you and I. As we grow in Christ's likeness, we will become increasingly dependent upon the Lord. We have this false view, and, and think about this way. You know, as kids grow up, we want our kids to be independent, right? We want them to be able to, you know, go to school and get a job and pay their taxes and all that kind of good stuff. That's not really what God wants. God doesn't want our kids to be independent. He wants them to transfer their dependence from us as their parents to him. You see, the the real thing about being a parent is we are actually, in a certain sense, God's stand-ins for when our kids are small. We are to be representatives of what it looks like to to care for someone, to love someone, to guide someone. We, We are basically like God's ambassadors in the lives of our children. He doesn't want our children to be these independent who kind of make it on their own and do their own thing. That leads them away from God. He wants them to be people who understand that they need God for everything. And so that's what God's doing in yours and my life as he takes us through deep waters. He's he's wanting us to depend upon him, to trust in him, to, to seek him for everything that we need. So as a reminder, as we close our time together, that it's inevitable that deep waters are going to encounter us as believers. If you want to walk with the Lord, he is going to take you out of the kiddie pool. He's going to take you out of the public pool, and he's going to set you in open water. But, you know, the good news is he's going to be there. And so when you find yourself today and you don't know how you're going to go on and the tribulation and difficulty, I I want to share with you a quote from Elizabeth Elliot's book, Suffering is Never for Nothing. She said this, I have discovered that there is no consolation like obedience. That when you find yourself in this place of difficulty and hardship that you would just say, you know what, I'm just going to obey. One of Elizabeth Elliot's sayings was just do the next thing. Just obey. Just obey, just do the next thing. When you find yourself in deep waters, simply obey the Lord, do the next thing, no matter what happens, and soon you will find the shore rising up to meet you. 